vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? Yay, my ass is just about back in fighting shape. Uh, just about uh, in time for my back to go out. But you know what? We're hanging in there. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray. Eventually. Not tonight, but eventually. We're going to have to talk Strange New Worlds. But I have got an on-target, on-task, on-topic question for you. In the light of a couple of clunkers we're going to talk about tonight, what is a story that you are dreading reading for this show Ooh, that's a good question because here's the thing there are bad bad batman stories i am not necessarily dreading those because you know what we will have some fun tearing into some of those terrible stories but those terrible stories also tend to be short Four issues of terrible comics, I can deal with that. Maybe even six issues of terrible comics. There was, is still, because they exist, a pair of miniseries that came out, uh, oh boy, probably in the early to mid-aughts, called Batman Odyssey. This was Neil written, Adams. Yes, written and drawn by Neil Adams. These are in fucking sane comics. They are just bonkers fucking books. And not only are they bonkers, they're incredibly dense. Like art drowned out by huge volumes of insane word balloons. Oh, no. And you know how long it is? 13 issues across two volumes, a six oh. and a seven. Oh, fuck me. Latter-day Neil Adams is all completely insane and way too wordy, but this is 13 issues. Even if we break it up into, you know, two parts, it's still six and seven, and it's really one continuous story with, you know, an artificial climax in the middle. So it really should be read as one. And it's 13 plodding insane issues and insane is fine plotting and insane is another thing that's uh that's sean gordon murphy territory exactly what our worst the murphy stuff is all what sevens sevens that read like 12s true these are going to be 13 that read like 35 Aish. It is similar density to some of the stuff we have tonight. Oh, that's rough. Ugh, I might need to revisit my answer. Okay, what is your answer? I'm thinking just about any of the Latter-day Miller stuff. Oh, yeah. Because uh, yeah, we still got two volumes of Dark Knight looming out there. I hear that Strikes Back is bonkers. I read a little bit of Master Race. And even just thinking about the title and Frank Miller 
makes me a little sad, but I remember Master Race being plotting and boring. And then there's All-Star Batman and Robin out there. All of those seem very bad. And there's Golden Child, which was a one-shot similar to uh, Last Crusade, and that it was a prestige one-shot. But it takes place after all of that. Uh, Raphael Grampa art. So it's it's fascinating to look at, but it's it's Miller, latter-day Miller. I read Strikes, uh, Strikes Again once when it came out, and... It's bad and insane, but I don't remember it being plotting. I remember it re- being fairly breezy, even though it's completely bonkers. Master Race was plotting. That's the thing that I dread the most. I dread comics that I'm like, every turning every page is agony because you, you know that the next page is still going to read like five pages. Yeah, the the equivalent of looking at your watch during a movie. Like, when the fuck is this going to be over? Bad movies are at least fun. And it's the same with bad comics. We've had fun talking about bad comics. But a comic that there's not much to talk about because it's just dull, that's a problem. Speaking of movies, and uh, we'll put in a plug for the uh, Patreon, uh, we covered The Flash this uh, this weekend, and that episode will drop um, here pretty soon. Indeed. Uh, it should, by the time this drops, it will have been out for a couple weeks. Uh, I am in the process of editing it, so it should be dropping on the 30th, as we usually do drop on the last day of the month. So it it will be there with a still by the time this drops fairly recent within a month of its release. Uh, so yeah, join the Patreon, hear us talk about the Flash. It was it a time. It was a movie. Yes, that is the best way we can we can go about saying that. Hey, I didn't check my watch, but I did text during the whole thing. So, meh. And just as we revealed at the end of that, which, you know, our most of our Patreon backers will probably have heard it by then, hopefully, uh, but we'll drop a little bit of future knowledge for those of you out there next month or this month, as you know, you listen to this, we will be doing Batman 89 finally. So that finally, you ready to get nuts, Matt? Come on, let's get nuts. Let's get nuts. You know what we're not going to get nuts with tonight's comics. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what did I text you, uh, earlier this week? Let me, let me see. I'll, I'll pull it up. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I asked Matt a question about, uh, you know, which one of the books, you know, whereas we're going to get into like some of the titles kind of vague in the history of DC comics, like which specific one are we going to read? And he gets back to me and quote, I'm starting to regret that I asked. This thing is interminable. We're, we're going to start with that one. So let's let's go right in. This week, it is Tales of Batman and his fellow members of DC's Trinity, Superman and Wonder Woman. And the first book is World's Finest. This is World's Finest, Volume 2, Numbers 1 to 3. The writer is Dave Gibbons, pencils by Steve Rude, inks by Carl Kiesel, colors by Steve Olaf. Letters by Bill Oakley and edited by Mike Carlin and Jonathan Peterson. The cover date is August to October of 1990. A Devil's Bargain sends the Joker on vacation to Metropolis, 
while Lex Luthor attempts a hostile takeover of Gotham City. Batman and Superman must experience a little bit of each other's lives in cities and try to stop their greatest foes before their schemes and rivalries destroy both cities. Let me say first that the very best part of this book is Dave Gibbons' uh, forward, because it's very cute, and he talks about in uh, in Australia how they didn't get uh, proper comics, they were digests, and shit was weird, and like he talked about just kind of the majesty of seeing Batman and Superman together, and it was like really cool, and you could tell he was really interested and excited about this project. I just wish it had turned out better. One fact that I discovered today in a Batman History of Batman Facebook group, today is apparently the actual anniversary of the drop of the first issue of this series. Ah, yeah, complete coincidence, but who'd have thunk it? This book is a good idea that does not come together. No, uh, a lot like the next story we're going to take up. There are some really cool moments, some really cool ideas. This is very poorly paced and structured. Yes. Again, just like the next book, there are like a couple of different off ramps where you're like, okay, story's finished. We're done here. Let's go home. But then no, there's more. The last issue of this has full on Return of the King syndrome. The end happens six times. And frankly, the last issue is weirdly like an epilogue. Because it is. The plot that is that starts in issue one wraps up at the end of issue two. And then issue three is just sort of like, okay, the, the mystery and everything was already resolved. Now we're going to get an issue of the Joker and Luthor just sniping at each other? And by the way, of course, it's, an, it's a mystery that nobody gives a fuck about, if you're the reader. And a not terribly difficult to figure out one. No. And this also takes place somewhere adjacent to, but not directly in continuity. Similar to the other Dave Gibbons written book we've done, Batman versus Predator. Something that is close to continuity, but not quite. Because in this book, the Joker seems to be at least partially legit. He yeah, has... his uh, entertainment concerns. Right. He owns strip clubs, gambling dens, etc., and he he seems to have a certain degree of actual influence in Gotham versus just being a terrifying clown murderer man. Which is the more interesting Joker, of course. I don't quite understand other than wanting to give him more of a parallel to Luthor. Because this whole book is really about compare and contrast of Batman and Superman the things that they have in common and the things that make them different. And that's clear right out of the gate because the first two scenes in the book, aside from a flashback is a scene of Batman fighting some crooks and it ends with one of them offing himself and Batman realizing he works for the Joker. And then Superman fighting a bunch of crooks 
him catching them, bringing them to Metropolis PD, and them already having bail posted by Luthor. And Luthor here is more visibly criminal than he is in the Superman stories of the time, because these guys are drug dealers. And it's been a while since I've read Luthor of this era, but he never got his fingers in the stories I read into things that street level and dirty. He was corporate crime and weird science crime, not street crime. It's funny that you mentioned fingers there, because that's one at least sign that this is attempting to get into some kind of continuity because he's missing a hand. I noticed yes. that. Yes, this is when the period where Luthor had lost his hand because he had been wearing a kryptonite ring for so long that it gave him cancer. Because, yeah, kryptonite is instantly radiation poisoning for Kryptonians, but it's still radioactive. And if you wear a ring of a radioactive element long enough, guess what's going to happen? It's going to give you cancer. Just ask Marie Curie. Mm-hmm. So he had had his hand removed to try to stop it, but it was a whole thing that wound up involving clones. It, it involves clones. We'll just let that, we'll let that lie. But yeah, at this point, that... Hey, 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 sometimes you need spare parts, Matt. Let's put it this way. The story that answered all the questions was called They Saved Luthor's Brain, which is a great title for a story. Oh, wait, was this like uh, Big Red Irish Luthor? Yep. yep, Luthor's Brain into Big Red Australian Luthor's Body, yes. Uh, you guys got real high in the nineties. <laughs> I was supposed to say the whole plot, but the plot of the first two issues involves an orphanage and opening this orphanage in the midway point between Gotham and Metropolis. You'd think that there would be a lot in there about Clark and Bruce both being orphans in some way or another but it's barely mentioned. There's one flashback of the two of them both having dreams of their birth parents, Clark's birth parents, Bruce's parents' parents. And it's like, oh, right, they're orphans, but they don't really make a big deal of it. Nobody really talks to Bruce Wayne. He has one line to Lois in an interview about how important it is for kids to have parents. But it's one of these things that you would think would have been central to this but it's really glossed over. And there's so much about the machinations Luthor and Joker are having involving this orphanage in the now empty orphanage buildings in Gotham and Metropolis and the guys running the orphanage. This collected volume includes Dave Gibbons outline in the back. And you could look at the outline and just feel what the fuck are you doing here? You have Batman, you have Superman, you have Joker and Luthor, and you're spending so much time basically in real estate deals and a crooked priest doctor teaching orphanage kids how to crime. This book is just the epitome of taking your eye off the ball, right? This should have been, what is it, Luthor, you're driving me sane, right? Just shenanigans and hijinks, maybe a little a little straighter, a little bit more serious, but right when you have these four characters in your series and you're getting so deep into the fucking weeds about this orphanage, like who gives a shit, Dave? Who gives a shit? You do. We don't. 
there was potential for the orphans being something interesting. Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent having to interact with these orphans while Luthor and Joker are swapping cities because there's a good idea right there. Luthor trying to buy up Gotham City, Joker just fucking around in Metropolis. Metropolis having no idea what to do with him. Right. And Gotham being so endemically corrupt that someone like Luthor can play the system that is already broken like a violin. Luthor should have been mayor of Gotham in like two days. Or it would have involved more characters. But what actually would have been kind of hilarious was Luthor being so used to the easy corruption of Metropolis and him sort of running things that the line around the block of corrupt officials, like it's not bribing like the three guys you need to in Metropolis. Everybody has their hand out. And he's like, wait, wait, who now? I've already bribed a building inspector. Yeah, that's the building inspector for that block. Gotham is building inspectors for every block, and they all have their hand out. Oh, and now you bought into the next block? Yeah, you've now gone into Two-Face's territory, and his guys are trying to shake you down. Wait, in Metropolis, I pay one guy. I deal with Bruno Mannheim and Intergang. Yeah, that's not how it works in Gotham. There are like 30 mobs, each run by some different freak, and they all want to cut. Luthor not knowing how to deal with the sheer insanity of Gotham would have been Uh, pretty hilarious. He finds the city simply to be too corrupt, and that's why he leaves. It's not because he's beaten. It's just because he's just exhausted. He's cutting his losses because it's just not worth it, which is how he what he gets to in the end. But that's just because Joker has become such a royal pain in his ass. And Batman, too. There was so much about contrasting Batman and Superman and funny, wacky little scenes of Joker and Luthor bouncing off each other. It was fun to see the element of chaos entering an ordered system in Joker and Metropolis. It would have been hilarious to really stress that Luthor is an ordered element entering into a completely chaotic and corrupted system. Lawful evil versus uh, chaotic evil. Exactly. Luthor and Joker are perfect examples of those two concepts. Because Luthor sticks to the system. Luthor manipulates the system and uses it for the most corrupt manner. While Joker is just sheer whatever the fuck he feels like that particular moment. And I think you could have done much more with that. I'm trying to save art discussion for after we've worked through some of the other bits and pieces here. The final issue circles back around to the orphans at the very end, while the majority of the third issue is just Luthor set off a whole bunch of bombs in Gotham and Joker caused massive blackouts in metropolis and now we have to deal with this and all of these intense amounts of character beats and development that we had with reverend monks 
who is the corrupt priest, and Reverend Fulbright, the good priest, is, is just forgotten. The parts that were uh, comprehensible. The first issue with all of the flashbacks to Monks as a kid and him being the nephew slash son of the Fagan of the Metropolis Orphanage who died and left him all of this, but who isn't really dead because they faked his death. And it really has this sort of Charles Dickens thing going on because Dickens was not writing. He was writing social commentary. And I think Gibbons might've had a little bit of that going on here, talking about credit gentrification in 1990. There's a lot of talk about Luthor forcing people out of their homes. But it's never really fleshed out. And I had to keep reminding myself that Joker isn't the criminal mastermind psychopath that we're used to him being. Because Monks makes a a legitimate business deal with Joker. And it's like, that, you can't. The man's institutionalized for all manner of reasons. Any deal you make with this guy is going to get thrown right out in court because there's no way he's considered anything but an encompass mentis. Well, I mean, if you pay the right judge. Again, you're right. It's Gotham. Everybody's on the take. Joker buys the orphanage and then sells it to Luthor. And like, again, what what are you doing here? What's What's the point to all of this? It's clear that he was really invested in these characters, but that's about it. I think Gibbons has a decent handle on most of the characters in these books. Your Batman and Superman casts are all pretty much exactly how you'd expect them in this era. But we get vast swaths of so many other characters. And he introduces a pair of orphans, one from Metropolis and one from Gotham. You'd think they would be really interesting point of view characters you'd see them interact with bruce wayne with clark kent with batman with superman and they really are just there to keep regularly eavesdropping on monks and trying to tell fulbright that something is going on and fulbright just ignoring them because they're just have they're just getting used to this creepy new orphanage in the middle of nowhere and then Batman saves the Metropolis kid and Superman saves the Gotham kid at the end of issue two. But we don't really get any payoff to any of that. I would have rather had something to do with them having to deal with the orphans rather than the orphanage. And even like the orphans getting into crime thing would have been a little interesting but that was a thing that happened in the past. That was a scandal at the orphanage. Like right. we didn't even see the good, the good weird shit that went down. Yeah, and it happened with Monk's father Wiley. But and then Monk's was like, I had to do it again to try to get Joker off my back to pay him, and we never saw that. So many dropped beats. One thing that I absolutely loved here was Lois's interactions with Alfred. That was a weird kind of character pairing. I didn't dislike it, but every time I just got the distinct feeling of, this is strange. 
it's not one you expect, but when you, the, the way I look at it is those are the two most important people in each of our heroes' lives. Yes. And so putting them together and Lois being a military brat, Lois being the champion of the common man. I like that she's, Alfred, you can take the night off. You don't have to be on tonight. Really works for her character. And I like that you slowly watch Lois realize that Bruce Wayne is more than the persona that he puts on over the course of the series, mostly because he completely fucks with Luthor on a couple of occasions, which is great. I liked that it was that it was an unusual pairing and it worked for me. Perry White and Jim Gordon made a lot more sense. Yeah. The the older kind of mentor figures and you could see, you know, Perry having to have done stories in Gotham however long ago it was when Gordon had just come there from Chicago about hero cop Jim Gordon and the two of them seeing eye to eye on the corruption. And one thing I did like is that we treated Batman going to Metropolis and Superman going to Gotham as serious things. Like this was different. This was, this was unusual. And the same thing with Bruce and Clark traveling to the respective different cities, the whole idea about taking the train and like, it was, it was a big deal. And, you know, you read that forward from Gibbons and like, he took this project very seriously. And like I said, all the way back at the beginning, I just wish it had turned out better for him and for us. I liked the fact that nowhere in there was Bruce like, no, you can't come to Gotham. It's my city. Yeah, we get a bit too much of that in the last story. In both of the other two stories. This was a case where logically, all right, he knows Luthor better. So yeah, Superman, come to Gotham. It makes sense. And Batman, as stubborn as he is, isn't dumb. And I often feel like writers forget that, oh, right, Batman's supposed to be the smart guy. And while he might not love asking for help, if it's going to save lives, yeah, he'll do it. So that's, that is something that we did, we saw work well here. The other thing that worked really well is the art. Beautiful book. Steve Rude kills on this book. It is absolutely stunning. Rude's art and the paints over it. I was surprised that you know Steve Olaf on colors. I I thought Rude had fully painted this book. It's beautiful. His Joker is just wildly insane. And one of the other things that I said to Will when we messaged briefly about this before is, again, read these cover dates. This is late 1990. So I had been reading comics for less than a year and was nine years old. Yeah, I don't think I read these comics. I think I looked at them because they're really good looking. But I think I probably flipped through them, tried to read them, and then just appreciated the art. Some of it sticks in my head. 
there's a whole bit where Joker and Luthor, Luthor's bodyguards and the Tweedles, who are Joker's thugs in this one, have a Mexican standoff in the abandoned orphanage. I remember that. I remember some of these incredible splash pages. And I remember the end of issue two, where it wraps up the whole Monks and Wiley thing as Wiley, alive after all, burns down the orphanage. And as everyone is fleeing, he like pulls his son into the burning orphanage and you watch them burn. And you like see like skull faces, the fire melts away their skin. That was an image that stuck with me. Yeah. And uh, apparently the whole orphanage was just flammable immediately. I can even give them that, that, you know, Wiley had been trapped in this orphanage, which has all of these secret passages for a while. I'd wager he'd basically, if I'm going to take this place down, I'm going to make sure it goes right up. Rude's Superman looks right out of the classic 40s Fleischer cartoons. Big barrel chested Superman and his Batman feels proto animated series. This is before the animated series, but it has a similar simplicity of design. Rude, if you look at his Nexus and things like that, he has an Alex Toth influence, which is also an influence in Bruce Timm's work, that the stuff that led into animated series. So there are similar influences there. It is a really stunning book. And Gotham and Metropolis look distinct. Every street scene, every crowd scene, incredibly detailed. But not drowning in detail. No. I think the the detail I like the best is uh, in that third issue where after those explosions and revelers are, I don't know, falling out of buildings and stuff. There's just some great details uh, that are put in there and it's really vibrant and lived in and it looked great. Uh, And the designs, like you said, are fantastic. Superman reminded me most of that PSA that you see from time to time about discrimination is un-American or however it goes, like just a classic, classic look. I wish he had done more with these characters. His commentary in the back of the collected edition says that he took this you know this might be my only chance to draw these characters so i'm gonna draw the hell out of these characters and for you i mean you look at his credits on dc comics and it is very small it's all one shots and pinups and little bits and pieces So he got this and he ran with it. As you said, good for him. Good for you. I think I'm good. Do you have anything else? Uh, Nope. So that means it's time for World's Finest on the Big Board. We have 279 stories on the Big Board. Getting real close to 300. Number one is still Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. At number 50 is Rooftops, the Batman-Catwoman story from Tom King and Mitch Gerrards. 
And coming in at a sexy, spoopy 69, it's Batman Bloodstorm. At 100 is Images, the Denny O'Neill Brett Blevins retelling of the first Batman Joker story. At 150 is The Secret of the Waiting Graves, the first Denny O'Neill Neil Adams story. At 200 is the Zero Hour crossover. At 250 is the Arrow and the Bat. Well, Denny O'Neill hitting most of the books this week. We got a lot of Denny on this list. And hey, but down at the bottom, that's not Denny. That's White Knight. Boo. Nothing problematic in here. So this does not fall into the lowest echelon. No. The art is also so good that I feel like that bumps it a few slots over something similarly windy and not quite there that has only okay art. All right, let's start... It's a good story, at least, but the art is very much not so good. And I feel like this is too high, uh, but it's a ballpark. Injustice, Volume 1, 168. Now, I'm, I'm scrolling down from there trying to get to a, well, I would read this before. Okay, I would read this again before I read Officer Down at 194. Yep. Because That's Officer, fair. Officer Down is longer, despite these being double-sized issues, and it has such an incredibly soft middle. It's got a good first issue, a good seventh and eighth issue, and two through six could almost be skipped. Yeah. The thing that makes this difficult is the art. Uh, if the art was simply mediocre, this would be well down in the 230s. Just right above the problematic stuff but the art does save it here 179 death in the maidens this is actually one we're going to have to look at when it comes to our last story because this has some similar problems to our last story death in the maidens is longer and the klaus jansen art is really good but not as good as the steve rude art but the story in death in the maidens is at least more cogent, less rambly. Right below that, Arkham Asylum Living Hell has its issues, but a lot of that is a fun and interesting story. Yes. I think I would slide this in right under Living Hell and above Riddler in the Dark, which is just kind of, it's kind of a nothing. Yeah, I'll give this 181. Our second story of the night is Gods of Gotham. This is Wonder Woman, Volume 2, numbers 164 to 167. Written and penciled by Phil Jimenez, inks by Andy Lanning, colors by Pamela Rambo and Jameson, letters by Comic Craft, edited by Tony Bettard, Eddie Berganza, and Tom Palmer Jr. Cover dates are January to April of 2001. The children of Ares have possessed some of Gotham's most powerful rogues and convinced Maxi Zeus to build a cult to them. Now, the Batman and Wonder Woman families must join forces to stop the gods from bringing fear, terror, discord, and war to the mortal realm. Right off the bat, real quick, a problematic creator watch, Eddie Berganza, known sexual 
harassment creep. I think one of my biggest problems with this is if you're going to have Joker being tempted by a Greek god and then possessed by said god, that's some weird shit that we should probably see on the page. And while I understand the logic of having Eris, goddess of discord, in Poison Ivy because of the whole golden apple thing, which is part of Eris's shtick, if you've got a god of chaos and discord, Joker is really the logical host for that god. Or maybe you just put all of your gods inside Joker. Chaos, discord, terror... Kind of works. The God of Fear and Scarecrow makes is, is the most logical one-to-one. True. So this is the first arc of Wonder Woman by Phil Jimenez as writer-artist. And yes, it makes sense if you're going to do your first arc as... And correct me, anyone who's a big Wonder Woman fan out there, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this but the first out queer creator on Wonder Woman, you want to do something big to get some, some readers in there. And so teaming Wonder Woman up with Batman and each member of the Wonder Woman family up with the logical Bat family equivalent is a great way to bring in readers. However, the problem that I find here is that if you are not a wonder woman reader as well there's a lot of stuff that gets glossed over here that could have probably used a little more explaining and you have to tread a fine line where you don't want to be sort of talking down to your regular wonder woman readers who know all this already but this is the opening arc of a new run featuring characters who are no offense to wonder woman and her cast much more popular so a lot of the people who are going to be coming on to this are probably not wonder woman readers but batman readers it could have used some more time letting those readers know some of the details of the stuff going on Versus having to sort of figure it out as you go along. And I think, too, the story's hurt by the fact that it basically opens in media res, right? You, like, you start with the conflict with Maxi Zeus and, you know, the gods. Like, there's no buildup to it. There's no mystery. There's no, hey, there's this growing cult in Gotham. Let me investigate it. Oh, you know, Joker, Poison Ivy, uh, and Scarecrow have all disappeared or some such i know ivy was apparently dead at the time or something uh, ivy was at that point this is right post no man's land they had sort of you'll we'll get to this in no man's land she had reached a separate piece with bruce during no man's land and after the city was reopened they kind of deeded her robinson park because she had basically fed the people of the no man's land by growing them food in the park. So she was just sort of off the board. Or again, we got this is a Wonder Woman comic. So if you wanted to begin it, you begin with 
the Wonder Woman scene that's sort of the second or third scene where she's called back to Themyscira and the prophet of the Amazons is like, something bad is going on with the gods in Gotham. And you have her go to Gotham and to Bruce and him be like, Maxi Zeus has been up to something. And with his beliefs, this obviously connects to to what's going on and you then can sort of have them investigating maxi zeus versus it just being like oh we found maxi zeus and he's being crazy because he's maxi zeus and that's not at all unexpected him starting a crazy greek god cult the guy who believes he's zeus oh what a what a shock there how well versed are you in your greek mythology not uh well versed at all so uh, whenever mythology comes up as a trivia category, I know to keep my fucking mouth shut. So I, I'd wager there's a lot of this stuff that was just like you had no clue what was going on with a lot of the references to the gods and things, because there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I get I get Aries as Diana's big bad. So I was at least able to follow that. But the rest... I know Zeus likes to fuck, and I know that Zeus sometimes likes to fuck as an animal. Other than that, right, you've you've lost me when it comes to uh, Greek mythology. And and of course, there was a good amount of Donna Troy in here, which second only, or even possibly worse than the Hawks, when it comes to black holes of continuity, where the comprehension of the character's history goes to die. Well, I did like... What was it? Nightwing just kind of ruminating a couple of times like, oh, she's just like a piece of Diana. Huh. That's weird. Yeah, that was a recent change to her 18 origin stories. Because I think we talked about this once before in the League of Assassins episode. She was the Wonder Girl that was created by Bob Haney because Bob Haney didn't realize that Wonder Girl stories were just young Wonder Woman stories. So we had Wonder Girl join the Teen Titans. And then it was like, but there is no Wonder Girl. (laughs) She's young Wonder Woman. And so from there, it's just been trying to somehow come up with a reason why this character exists. And she had a, a halfway decent origin, but then Crisis completely made that origin not work anymore. So they rebooted her origin And then that origin was confusing and didn't quite work, so they rebooted her origin again. Donna is a huge continuity mess. At least with Batman, you've just got Thomas and Martha and Joe Chill, and that's that's about it. Yeah, I mean, occasionally you get, you know, the Lou Moxon, you know, oh, the Waynes were killed involving some sort of mob thing, but that's the worst that you get. It doesn't usually involve, you know, bat gods and... (laughs) play and or zeus fucking as the deep dc lore guy around here i stand firmly with the original origin not a big fan of the oh yeah the whole thing with the clay we made that up because we didn't want to let you know that hippolyta and zeus got down and you're zeus's biological daughter so yeah we have this story and we kind of talked around it but the children of aries phobos demos and Eris have possessed Gotham rogues. Phobos, the god of fear, has taken the Scarecrow. Demos, the god of terror, has taken the Joker. And Eris, the goddess of discord, has taken Poison Ivy. 
for those out there not as versed in mythology, the whole thing with Eris taking Ivy is because Eris's whole shtick is the golden apple. She's the one who started the Trojan War by hucking a golden apple with the words, the translation of which are to the fairest in the middle of a cluster of Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena, and all of them arguing over who deserved to get the apple. And this, in the long run, led to the, the Trojan War. Not cool, Eris. Or I guess if you're the goddess of discord, then that's right up your alley. And let me ask you this. Why did we have an editor's note reference to that uh, Batman Huntress series? Because at the end of that series, Huntress takes the cross off her costume and seems to retire. And she's out of the picture for the next few years. This would have come out right after that, but she's active as Huntress. So it's just saying, hey, she's not you know, back in costume. This takes place before that. Okay, because uh, I clearly, I don't remember anything. You know, I read it and it just appear, disappears from my brain. The gods have Harley. And again, you'd think Eris would have really attached herself to Harley. Because again, discord and chaos. Harley is the logical host. But Ivy also has powers. So, mm. but nonetheless, we then get Diana and Artemis coming to Gotham because the Oracle Penelope has told them the gods are at play in Gotham. Batman and Wonder Woman team up. Huntress and Artemis team up. Eventually Nightwing and Donna Troy show up. Eventually Robin and Wonder Girl show up. Tim Drake, Robin. And so we have each of the four principal members of the Wonder Woman family, or four of the five, because Hippolyta doesn't have a logical analog. And their Bat family analogs working together or at cross purposes to fight the gods. Jimenez does a really good job on the art. I mean, Jimenez started out as an artist, and this is earlier in his writer artist time. He had done a four issue miniseries for Tempest, the original Aqualad, and had just written and not drawn one of the Teen Titans spinoffs, Team Titans. But this is the start of his time as a writer-artist, and he overwrites the hell out of this thing. Oh, does he ever. And I think the page I loathed the most had to be after Batman's transformation into Bat God of Fear. Everyone is speaking profusely in this uh, God lettering. And it's every balloon on the page has this alternate lettering. And there's so many of them. And it is such just a hideous thing to behold and try to read. More matter with less art. Except in this case, more art with less matter seems appropriate. And if you're going to have Batman be tempted and taken over by the God of Fear... Just like with Joker, I want to see more story there, right? We just have Batman get hit by a beam or something. And in the next panel, he is Bat God, which admittedly had a cool design. And you see Diana you know, reach out to him and wind up you know, talking him into rejecting Phobos's power. Again, it's a Wonder Woman comic, to be fair. To be fair, but 
it would have been nice to have gone into Batman's head a little and seen him fighting against Phobos's influence. Because it does make sense that, again, you know, Scarecrow is a logical vessel for the God of Fear, but Batman is the better vessel. And when the fear energy starts rippling out over Gotham because Batman is so much a stronger host that it starts out inspiring the fear in all the criminals in Gotham. Makes perfect sense. Would have been great to spend a little more time with that. Yeah. One Um, panel. But then also you have a Batman who gives in to temptation and that does not seem very good. Jimenez does not get Batman too well compared to some of the other characters in here because this is the frustrating thing to me when people write batman as if he's sort of ignoring the existence of the supernatural or treating it like no there's no such thing as gods like i mean he he said you know yes shazam and all these other characters they acknowledge gods but i don't believe in them it's like dude they exist whether you believe in them or not. This right. is the world you live in. And it would be fine for me to think that there are extra dimensional beings of incredible power or something like that. But the fact that he just seems to be like, no, they don't exist. There are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists in worlds where demons and angels actually talk to you. You have to be intentionally obtuse to not believe in magic or believe in the existence of the gods, no matter how you explain them in a world where their hand is actively seen. Year one Batman should absolutely say, fuck off, get out of here. Year one and a half Batman should be, oh, I've seen some shit. I know better. The minute- I can't explain it, but I've seen some shit. The minute he meets Superman, it's like, okay, aliens are real, but I still don't believe in magic. And then, oh, hi, Zatanna, I remember you from when I was a kid. Oh, shit, you're doing that? Okay. Even then, year one Batman, depending on which version you're taking, the knight shows that he encountered Z during that, you know, his years of travel. So he might have some belief in some of that stuff. And if he encountered Raish beforehand, he has, again, some belief there are some forces beyond his understanding. But even removing them, the minute he encounters Superman and then encounters Atana, it's like, I might not get this shit, but there's shit out there that not even I understand. Anything is apparently possible. And so it's best to be prepared for all that shit. There's nothing problematic here. Like we've read worse stories than this, but it just feels like there was so much going on. And then there's a weird bit at the very end where it's like, oh, and this is Maxie Zeus's daughter. I don't know why we're suddenly meeting Maxie Zeus's daughter out of nowhere. That seems an odd choice. And I don't think that that's a character who she might have appeared once or twice before, but I don't think she ever really came back after this. Pretty sure she appeared in a couple of 
you know, there are a couple of little appearances in some earlier Maxi Zeus stories. But again, it's like, okay, you brought her in and here she is. And what good is that exactly? Because unless Jimenez had plans for the character and never just wound up doing anything with them. And again, boy, he kills off Maxi Zeus pretty good. And Maxi stays dead through the reboot of the new 52. Like he only comes back when the whole universe is rebooted. He stays dead for the next 12 years, 10 to 10 or 11 years. Well, to be fair, what you going to really do with Maxi Zeus? Oh yeah. He's a gag villain. Mostly a little bit above film freak. Yeah. I mean, but the whole shtick with him in nightfalls, aha, I'm running out of Arkham and I run right into a tree. I don't think he even really gets a territory in no man's land. I'm sure that he like took over a building and whatever real villains territory he was in. Yeah. Just let him have the building. I don't want to deal with that putz. You, you, you can have the, you know, the recreation of the Parthenon or whatever. Yeah, the, the, the casino that has the Roman theme that he, he claimed. He's one of those characters that, because he appeared on Batman the Animated Series, I think that he has a bigger role, but not really. Oh, actually, it might be more appearances than I thought. 43. But yeah, Batman, he popped up in Batman the Animated Series, and he pops up in Arkham Asylum, the Morrison graphic novel. So it's like, Oh, he's got to have more going on. And it's like, no, not really. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that the fact that he pops up sometime in the post one year later was just a writer not realizing that he was dead because it's he has one appearance post pre-reboot post this death. And that just strikes me as somebody making a mistake in their script because, yeah, he's... He was dead. I wish there were more Batman and Wonder Woman stories. Just Batman and Wonder Woman. Because I think there is a really interesting dynamic that can be had between those two characters. They're both characters that exist with internal contradictions. Diana as the warrior for peace and Bruce as someone who wants to inspire hope and fear in equal measure in different people. And also the fact that of all of the Justice League, Diana is the one who is least inclined to pull a lethal blow when she believes it is necessary. Not that it's a first choice, but she is more than Clark, more than any of the Flashes, more than Jean, uh, Aquaman is, is might also be willing to take a life. But Diana is absolutely willing to. And that is always something that stands between the two of them. Did Batman and Wonder Woman ever have like a standalone series or miniseries together? There was a six-issue miniseries... A few years ago, uh, a, I believe it was a, a World's Finest miniseries or a Brave and the Bold miniseries. Excuse me, it was a Brave and the Bold Batman. A super, it was a Brave and the Bold 
Batman and Wonder Woman, Liam Sharp story and art, very deep into Celtic mythology, but it didn't deal with that, the, the stuff that I want to see dealt with with those two characters on their own. Here, I want to talk about their dynamic, but when we're talking about Batman, Superman, and World's Finest, it's like, no, we don't need to talk about that. We've talked about that dynamic, and it's such a well-established one. Oh, and here Bruce is a big old butt about, you know, Gotham's my city. Get out. My city. Again, these are her enemies. Wouldn't it just make sense to accept her help, Bruce? Keep your gods out of my city. Yeah, he actually says that. Like, they were their plans... By her first? Exactly. I'll be straight. I'll be honest. Uh, it's a slog. It's uh, it's a bit tiring, but it's only four issues, and that's good. And the art is really nice. The art that you can see buried beneath all of those word balloons. Yeah, and uh, Joker as uh, having snakes for hair, that's real fucked up. Jimenez is a great sense of design. He is very obviously one of the inheritors of George Perez, which makes sense with Wonder Woman as Perez is known for his lengthy run as first writer artist, then just writer on this particular volume of Wonder Woman at the beginning of its existence. But I think I think we're good. Uh, that means it's time for Wonder Woman God's Gotham on the big board. All right, well, let's start out above or below World's Finest. That's tough because this was a story that I could not follow at all. And the parts that I could follow, I just really didn't care about because the more the most interesting stuff was off the page. I I gotta say below. All right. So 248 is where we start getting into Oive territory. And so we're above that because we're not, as I said, there's nothing problematic here. We're above the the problematic strata, which begins a little below 248, but 248 is ponderous and incomprehensible spawn Batman. Yeah. Everything from there on down is where it's like, okay, that's that's just blech. Right. Joker at 228. Again, uh, this is another case of really nice art, not a great story. Better story than this. But a more problematic story than this. I would probably read this before I would reread uh, Dark Joker the Wild at 238. Oh, yeah, that that is a mess. Absolutely. I just looking at um, another fantastical story. And the the couple above that as well, I would definitely read this before I reread uh Not Super or Castle of the Bat, even though those are both shorter. Yeah, the the whole recurring thing in here about faith and making you know, having it in the end, you know, Batman, you know, I have faith in you and your dream of peace. It's like great, that that's all well and good. But again, you have to have Batman be a moron. To get to that point, cannot put it, the hard ceiling on this is 224. That dead man 
origin in the animated series style, I would read that again before I'd read this for sure. All right, so that's 224 to 238. Yes, so that's a reasonable span. What do you think about sliding it under Holy Terror? Yeah. Toward the toward the bottom of that span. Yeah. And I mean, with the understanding that Holy Terror is gonna be re-ranked at some point in the not too distant future. We yeah. got plans, folks. We got plans. Yep. So I'm thinking then so that's 233. 233. The final story of the night is Trinity. This is Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Trinity, numbers one to three, with story and art by Matt Wagner, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Sean Connett, and edited by Bob Shrek and Michael Wright. The cover dates are August to October of 2003. Witness, for the first time, the initial meeting of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman as they must band together to fight a dark mirror of their own alliance led by Ra's al Ghul. Racer cool. <laughs> I liked that. Racer cool. Oh, bizarro. First question I have to ask, because this is a fucking thing that broke my goddamn brain. How does Batman know that Raish al Ghul is behind this. Because, like, we see him skulking around, and then we cut right to the cave with Batman giving Soups the lowdown on Raish. And, like, I flipped through over and over again trying to figure out, okay, how does Batman know what's going on? And then I got nothing. Because he didn't get much out of the one member of the purge that he was interrogating ah when diana catches that guy in his lasso the demon brings destruction in his wake the city is the the home of his greatest foe he has all he always brings death to those i would assume that bruce put together from that the talk of the demon and this being the home of his greatest foe Bruce probably was able to put two and two together that this was Raish from that. Yeah, because he, he even starts talking call it, talking about Raish to that guy right in that scene. So he puts two and two together that it's Raish from that one thing that the, the Purge guy says. World's greatest detective. I don't know if that works. I wanted to call world's greatest detective on that one. Although it does at this point completely violate the canon because in these stories at this point bruce doesn't encounter race for the first time until dick is away in college and dick is clearly a little kid here but this again is just sort of nebulously canon there's enough things that violate the canon that it's not quite in line so as we often see with Trinity stories, we have a dark Trinity here. In this case, it's Raish, Bizarro, and a young Artemis in her more adversarial days to Diana before the two of them made peace with each other. And again, it's really pretty. Matt, the interrogation scene you're talking about happens on page 79. Mm-hmm. Does it not? Yes. 
Batman knows that it's Raish like 50 pages before that. He does? He does. He talks to Clark in the cave about Raish on page 37. What's on the top of that page, just so I can easily find it? Uh, so 35 is the reveal of Bizarro and Raish, his number one friend. And then the next page is Superman flying from Bizarro's crypt. The bottom panel on that is their leader's name is Raish al Ghul, Batman talking. His followers claim that he can raise himself for the dead. Page number at the bottom, page 36. Okay. Then my assumption there is that Bruce just tracks Raish and knows that these are Raish's thugs. If this were a League of Assassins story and these guys were League of Assassins, would you have needed the explanation that, oh, you need to see where Batman learns that they work for Raish al Ghul? I don't know, man, but it's confusing as hell. I think I just read that as Batman knows that the Purge is one of the arms of Raish's whatever. I do really like that Wagner makes Bruce and Clark look very different, unmasked. A lot of lazier writers make Bruce and writers, lazier artists make Bruce and Clark look very similar to each other. And he does not. Also, he could have interrogated the guys when he stops them from breaking into Star Labs and found out that they worked for Raish there. Okay, if you want to talk about confusing, the uh-huh. thing that frustrated me. Uh-huh. The narration switches from Clark to Diana to a third-person omniscient for Bruce. Like, Bruce doesn't narrate himself, and there's no differentiation. You have to sort of figure it out from the way they're speaking which one of them is narrating at any point. It would have been interesting to see that done consistently in, say, issue one versus issue two versus issue three. That would have been a way to go about it. That would be less like herky-jerky and, oh, who is this narrating now? It's a Bat-Cat problem. Exactly. It's shifting narration, or in that case, time span, without any clear indication. I mean, it's one thing when it's a scene of just one of them. It's like, well, of course. When the three of them are together, and sometimes I felt like it was changing narrator across the page without a different tint to the word balloon or it doesn't have to be lettering. It could be in the word balloon, the narration caption balloon. It could be in whichever of the, the, they begin with a sort of a capitalized letter, a different color for each one or the little symbol hidden beneath that some way to just indicate which one of them is narrating a particular scene. And in some cases, and again, in a lot of cases, it's obvious, but there are definitely places where it's not. It's always obvious when it's bizarro. Uh, me and brain not good. I mean, we haven't even really talked much about Raish's elaborate and insane scheme and how all everyone is sort of brought together on this thing. And the fact that Wagner doesn't know how Paradise Island works. And let's let's be honest, he doesn't really know how Batman works. 
explain how? Well, there's there's some just weird lines of dialogue. The whole like kissing Diana. Oh yeah, that was oh, yeah. Uh, but when he calls Bizarro something like I think Cleaver Face or something like that, that was that doesn't seem like a Batman line. The, the thing that that immediately bothered me is the eagles guarding Paradise Island. Diana, you know, says something about them. You know, the eyes of Zeus or something. Yet Zeus doesn't get anywhere near Paradise Island. It's all the goddesses that are the patrons of Paradise Island. Known trigger warning from about to say, but let's be fair. Known multiple rapist Zeus is not let anywhere near Themyscira. So it's like, wait, no, no, that's not that's not right. It's the the eyes of Artemis or Hera or anyone but Zeus or Ares. And I don't know how well this works with Artemis's backstory with her being out amongst the the world of men and working with Rachel Ghoul. It does not seem to line up with what I know of Artemis, but I don't know the character terribly well, so I might be wrong on that one. And that weird reveal toward the end is like, oh, I'm 14. Uh- and she, she never tells Raish her name. She claims to go by Diana. And then at one point he just starts calling her Artemis. So did she slip up somewhere? Did he figure it out? Or did Wagner forget that she was going by a fake name? I'm trying to remember. This is, what I think, one of the earlier takes on the fact that the Ubus are a tribe. Oh, also, Bizarro breaks the lasso of truth, which that's not how any of this works. <laughs> it's magic. Bizarro, again, for all of his other things, he is a clone of Superman and thus does still have that whole not good with magic thing. It's not like everything is inverted in such a way that he is stronger against magic. That's not there. Well, maybe it is, Matt. Every one of these characters does seem, except for Superman, does seem a little bit off. Diana is way more impatient and just sort of over-the-top confrontational when Mm. dealing with Bruce. Bruce is, again, full-on asshole, this is my city, Bruce. And Raish is a raging misogynist who threatens sexual violence on Wonder Woman and all of Themyscira, which is not in character with the Rachel Ghoul that we normally see. Yeah, and he does that on multiple occasions, threats of sexual violence, which is just, it's off-putting. And literally, one of those references happens in a scene where he's talking about using nuclear weapons. We know he's a bad dude, and I'm glad we have kind of stopped seeing this as a phenomenon in comics. This reading those references reminded me of you know Wade's uh, Irredeemable that also or, used sexual violence or anything by Mark Miller. And I just like I'm I'm so glad we are past this era in storytelling because it's just it's just gross. Oh, and then the uh, the 9/11 thing was gross too. Oh, yeah. Like, it would be one thing to say, oh, you know, Raish is using these remote-controlled airplanes to fly them into buildings. It would be one thing to posit that before 9-11, but this is very purposefully 
after 9-11, obviously. And there's even the rest, the reference to, well, gee, nobody could have seen this coming. Just poor taste. There's, you know, making your own peace with it, but do that on your own time. And the idea that these were remote controlled smacks vaguely of 9-11 conspiracy theories which is an extra layer of wow you shouldn't have done that especially when we've seen numerous occasions up to that point of Raish having cultists devoted enough to commit suicide for him yes we've already seen an ubu impale himself on a sword and bruce saying to one of these purge soldiers that oh yeah i removed the cyanide tooth and why exactly i wonder did wagner feel the need to create the purge versus just using the league of assassins which is yeah it felt like you didn't have the license to league of assassins or something you know you're watching like a marvel uh or like a fox marvel movie and they're like okay this is the roster of people we can use you know, they're all like D-list, but don't don't say League of Assassins. Very strange. If it was meant to be a mystery and you weren't supposed to figure out it was Rachel Ghoul until later, then okay, you could absolutely have the purge be whatever the villain is. But Bruce references them for the first time as the Purge. We're a few pages after we see Raish free Bizarro. And yeah, he doesn't go, but he doesn't, you know, say anything about being Rachel Ghoul, but he pulls down the balaclava and you see the Rachel Ghoul facial hair. Nobody else has that facial hair. It's no. obviously Rachel Ghoul at this point. I think so the first time the Purge is referenced is on that two-page spread when they're in the the limo. Right. And you see the Raish facial hair two pages before that. So we know... Ah, yes. That is, yeah, on on 24. Yeah, you're right. So we already know that Raish Ghoul is involved. So why not just use the League of Assassins? I do like how Superman can read binary off of a CD. I don't think that that's how that works, but it's cool that he can do it. You know, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the negatives here. The art is really nice. I like the two characters that are really in character are Superman and Bizarro. I'm almost able to forgive some of the, this is my city assholeness. When you take that, this is, a year three Batman. This is still early. We're still pre justice league. Aquaman shows up for no other reason other than to be like, Hey, it's Aquaman. Uh, Robin gets one panel. I also not a big fan of Bruce talking about metas as if they aren't human. There's a few moments where he's used like them. I don't like Bruce unpeopling human beings even if they're human beings with powers that's icky yeah totally a lot of the batman stuff doesn't work better than the racial cool stuff is is it ever but superman's great 
the art is really stunning. And for everything else, this one is not anywhere near as overwritten as the first two. No, this thing does zip right along. The art here is the showcase. It is a great looking book. Just got some strange choices. And as we were talking about in our uh, in our production meeting, I think for both of us, this didn't quite hold up as we uh, we thought it might. This is one of those rare stories that I had read before. Uh, I think I was trying to come up with a list. The newspaper wanted me to do a list of the best Wonder Woman stories. And I think this uh, made my list. But Wagner, he's a great artist, but... Some of these choices just didn't didn't work out, and some of the icky stuff is pretty icky. But a very specific thing with the art that I really like: this Wonder Woman is big. Wonder Woman isn't meant to be big Barda lady wrestler big necessarily, but she should be tall, and she shouldn't be wasp wasted and smaller than she is nearly eye to eye with superman here she's maybe three inches shorter than he is and is still fairly broad she looks solid not quite as solid as like darwin cook's take in new frontier but she is still substantial and i like that in a wonder woman i want a wonder woman who looks like a powerful physical presence and this Wonder Woman definitely is that. She's a warrior. Yeah. Not a dancer. She's not an acrobat. She's a fighter. Right. And that is, I think, what we often don't get. Wonder Woman is drawn like every other female superhero, most of whom are meant to be lithe fighters. Your Black Canaries, your Batgirls. Wonder Woman and Big Barda are big. Most of the Themyscirans. Thanks. Be, yeah, they should be physically intimidating. Taller than most men, or as tall and as broad as most men, but still feminine. You have to strike the right tone when drawing an Amazon. And not all of them. There might be some that are more masculine or who are smaller and slighter because not every Themyscirin is a warrior. Some are priestesses, some are artisans, but when the Amazons go to war, the Amazons should look like soldiers. But then also you can't, uh, they can't be threatening death by snooze too. So you're <laughs> right. They can't, they can't be giants. Right. For what? Less than a month away from new Futurama, the show that will not die. Fourth time's time's the charm. In 2023, we have new episodes of Futurama. We have new episodes of Beavis and Butthead. A revival of King of the Hill is in development. Adult animation will not die. I mean, we've had Animaniacs. We're having a new Tiny Toons Adventures. The beauty of animation, the actors can get older, but the characters... They, I keep getting older. They stay the same age. And there was a new Aqua Teen movie. Venture Brothers movie in less than a month. Okay. Definitely a veered off course here. 
So let's mm-hmm. let's steer into the skid and let's uh It's time but Trinity on the big board. Okay, this this is the highest of the night. Injustice Gods Among Us Year Two Volume One. We talked about and, that a, a little bit ago. Where does this stand against that? I'm looking a bit higher. Okay. I, I'm good with that. Batman Grendel is a little below that, and I would put this above Batman Grendel as well. So yeah, I'm good on I that. I think this just barely cracks the top hundred. Just just barely. I'm not sure if I'm willing to I, I mean I think it might be in the the one the one hundreds, but I'm not sure if I would put it above 103, Batman the Spirit. And so, some of the bad choices here really do knock it down a bit. Exactly. Um, it's so gorgeous. And there's good in it, but the bad choices really hurt it. All right. I would. It's still not as bad as Killing Joke. No. I also think it's not as good as player on the other side so let's i'm thinking between 107 and 114 i'm okay that is a good range for me okay 111 batman 66 meets wonder woman 77 speaking of batman and wonder woman stories i actually think i'd probably read that again first that was enjoyable that has that one sour note of 66 batman (laughs) the joker to death with his bare hands which cost it like 10 spots. Weird, weird way to go, man. But I would, I think that's exactly the spot in between that and Justice League last ride. Let's do it. Yep. So the, the new, new 112. 112. So next time we do a Trinity episode, what we got? We, oh boy. Well, we've got the two other series that are called Trinity. So the the Monopool, the one that started out as the Monopool Rebirth has multiple arcs because that was an ongoing. So there's that. There is also the third year-long, like 52-issue weekly that was called Trinity. That you had 52, you had Countdown, and then you had Trinity. And we'd have to find some way to deal with that because, again, that's 52 issues. That's a lot. Maybe we'll do the first third of that in the same way we dealt with Eternal. Is that the one where Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman disappear? Yep. They appear at the beginning. Then the Dark Trinity in there, I can't remember who they all are, make them disappear. And you have a world without the big three for the majority of the middle. And then they come back for the end. Weird choices. I don't want to read DC Comics without Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Oh, I'll, I'll, we got the the Futurama reboot, but it it, uh, it doesn't have Fry or Leela or Bender. No, it's <laughs> it's just uh, Hermes and Amy Wong and Scruffy. He's the janitor. Uh, I'm curious to see if they take the one episode of The Simpsons where the Futurama characters guest starred. And if that's canon or not, because Scruffy gets eaten by a monster in that episode of The Simpsons, Simpsorama. And so it's like, okay, is that canon? Because if it is, Scruffy's dead. 
And I don't want to live in a world without Scruffy. Scruffy believes in this company. Ah, oh, man. Scruffy and Zoidberg were always great for a laugh. Oh, oh yeah. But yeah, so, so we're done for the night. Next week, it's Tales of Jim Gordon as we continue the run-up to episode 100 with a story that served as an influence for Grant Morrison's run, as well as Scott Snyder's first major Batman story, The Black Mirror. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names, Jim, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubuck, so sorry to have you on soon to read such a terrible story, but he's going <laughs> to do it because you're a champ, a champ and a hero. Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will. You can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>